So we'll continue. Um, we're in uh, James chapter 5. Um, Pastor Paul covered the first part of the chapter last week, and we'll continue uh, 7 through 11. So um, I, when uh, Pastor Paul assigned this passage several months ago, I, was, I almost was tempted because he always gives, the, gives me the right to change to another topic, but uh, because this topic is, is difficult for two reasons. One, it's very familiar. I think anybody who's been in a church, we understand that, that the Bible calls us to be patient and to patiently endure suffering. And uh, to be honest, it's, so, it's, it's a familiar concept, but it's a difficult concept to apply and especially to talk about. But uh, I'm really glad that we're in a church where it's not the personal preference of the pastors or the ones who are speaking, but, but we abide by the Word of God. And uh, you know, sometimes we have to preach out of text that is difficult. And that's actually a good thing um, because... Um, you know, like I imagine, like if I tell my kids, "Hey, you can only, you'll only eat uh, whatever I, uh, you know, whatever you like, or you'll only eat whatever I like, whatever I like and cook," they're going to be, you know, not very balanced, right? And in the same sense, I think when we go through Scripture the way that um, this church does, it's such a huge blessing because we it makes sure that that we hear what the Word of God says, not what um, you know somebody wants to talk about, you know. So anyway, so I'm glad, but it's difficult. And so I pray for just extra grace um, for, from all of you guys um, so that the, the, that the text would speak as God intended for us, for us to listen to and to abide by and to live by, okay? All right, so with that in mind, let me uh, just jump into the text. Let's see, a second. Here we go. Let me set this up a little bit. Okay. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. This is the word of the Lord. Let me uh, just give a brief outline just to kind of orient us because, uh, yeah. So um, the first thing we want to just talk about is to, is to consider the context of this uh, particular passage. I think all of you are by now familiar with the, the overall context of the book of James, in which James is writing to the early Christians that are scattered all over, um, uh, you know, the Asia Minor, Middle East, Asia Minor at that time. And they were, they were scattered um, coming out of Acts chapter 8 because of the persecution that broke out against the Jerusalem church. And when they're scattered, they face not only uh, religious and political issues, as refugees, they were also victims and vulnerable to economic oppression as well. Now, the recipient, the recipient of the letter itself are Christians, but as you've noticed, um, uh, James switches between addressing Christians and non-Christians. And in this particular sense, three times he notes that, that, that what he has to talk about suffering and, and perseverance under suffering is specifically addressed to Christians. So please keep that in mind. And, and the key thing to, to focus on is this, that in the times of suffering, that we ought to focus on the Lord and not on the circumstances or the immediate causes that we think is, 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 is the reason for the suffering. 
The, the text itself just divides nicely into three portions. First, uh, James provides us three examples or aspects of patient endurance. Um, then he moves on to talk about the Lord's purpose. Why does the Lord allow suffering? And, and, and why does he call us to patiently endure them? And finally, it's just a, almost a side note, but it's a, such a wonderful reminder of the Lord's character who allows such difficult things to happen to the people that he, that, that he loves. So with that as an anchor, let's just get, dig a little bit deeper into the word. So the first sentence, be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. The word then points to the previous section. Why do we need to be patient? The, the reason why they need to be patient is because, as it is explained in verses 5, 4 through 6, the, the Christians were under tremendous suffering of injustice. Look, the wages you, the rich, fail to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you, economic exploitation. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. This could be a member of the congregation. It's, it's, it's violence and persecution. Now, this is not the only time that persecution from the rich, the powerful, is mentioned in this book. In chapter 2, verses 6 through 7, James says, addressing the congregation again, is not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? So the context of this section and the teaching on suffering um, is in the context of people who are being exploited, who are experiencing injustice and persecution, and even poverty. Now, this is the immediate context, but from an application point of view, I think we can extend this and draw lessons for all kinds of trials that we face, personal trials, things that you and I have experienced and will experience in our life. Because sometimes you think, yeah, yeah, persecution is for those early Christians or those that are in persecuted countries, but not for us. But God is incredibly um, just and equal, and, and, uh, and we also experience it. I guarantee every one of us have experienced deep, unjust, troubling troubles that, that, that are just as impactful to us as, as what uh, the first Christians um, have faced. Now, I wanted to uh, point, this, point out John chapter 16, verse 33. This is the, the last verse, is the last statement Jesus makes to his disciples before, in his final upper, upper room discourse before he goes to the cross. It's an incredibly important, literally the last words of Jesus to his disciples uh, before the cross and his resurrection. Here's what he says. He says, I've told you all these things so that in me, he says, you may have peace. But he goes on contrasting with in me. He says, in this world, the world that you and I live in, and the world of these first century Christians, in this world you will have trouble. You know, Every week we pray um, for my cousin Sarah, Sarah Chung. And uh, the person who really taught me the truth of this word and imprinted in me was my uncle, who is Sarah's father. He was a pastor. He's more than, you know, an uncle or in my Korean culture, my little father. He's a spiritual father to me. And I've seen him go through incredibly difficult times as a pastor. And, uh, and uh, he always had this desire that when he retired, he would uh, go and serve in the mission field and teach. He loved the scriptures. And so three years ago, uh, at uh, I guess it was 78 or so, he went to Na uh, Madagascar and Ethiopia, spent about six months teaching, and he loved it. 
He came back thinking, okay, this is the rest of my life. He literally said, okay, I'm going to go out there and teach um, in a Bible you know, and then, until I die. That was his plan, a noble plan. And uh, for many of us, it may seem like a strange way to retire, but for him, it was just an incredible uh, work of, jo- of joy. And then all of, the, all of a sudden, his beloved uh, last daughter, Sarah, got this strange neurological condition that they still don't know. And two years ago, she had this massive stroke that left her paralyzed and almost dead. And for the past two years, my uncle, my dear uncle and my aunt, um, in their retirement age, have been taking care of Sarah night and day without stopping as she begins this very slow process of recovery. Um, uh, in this world, we will have trouble. But Jesus says, take heart, I've overcome the world. And, and if you see the difference, he says, in this world, you'll have trouble. But even though we're in the world, if we're in Christ, he says, if you're in me, you may have peace. And this is the great promise and the testimony of every believer, including my uncle and my aunt, that in the midst of most difficult circumstances in this world, that those who are in Christ can experience peace that the world cannot comprehend and experience. So that the fact that these tribulations have come, the suffering has come, is actually par for the course for the believers. Now, as I mentioned, um, uh, uh, what, what uh, James is calling for, this Christ-like patient endurance, is possible for those who are in Christ. That's why three times in this passage, short passage, he mentions brothers and sisters. And seven times he mentions patient or patient or, or endurance, very related words that Pastor Paul has already talked about, to point out that on our own we cannot do this, that the lessons and what James is calling us for, we cannot do this apart from being in Christ. And for those of you who are seeking after the Lord among us right now, you may not know exactly what I'm talking about, but I promise you this is one of the most distinctive, practical, real experience of those who are genuinely born again and in Christ. Yes, there are noble people in every religion and people without every religion who have incredible capacity to, to, be, to be good and to even endure hardest conditions. But there's something about being in Christ that gives us a supernatural ability to suffer with dignity and to remain patient and endure because of Christ and for his, for his cause. And I invite you to, to come to know Christ that you may also experience what it means to live in Christ through all that life has to, life brings us. Life brings us. As I mentioned, the key in the whole passage is to focus on the Lord, who's, who is ultimately in control. The word "Lord" is used here again uh, uh, five times. Not God, not Jesus. Specifically, the word "Lord," because. What James is trying to do, remind us that in the midst of the severest sufferings and trials, God has not stopped being the Lord. These things do not happen because God is not powerful, nor because God is not good. But in fact, he remains very much the Lord. Now, 
when uh, we experience pain of any kind, you know, if I, you know, like, you know, if I drop the computer on my hand, right, the tendency, and we experience pain, what's the tendency? We focus on the pain immediately, right? We focus on the pain. If somebody were to punch me right now, I, I, I focus on the pain, but a few seconds later, what do I do? What do I focus on? The person who caused me, right? And that's just a natural response. And what, what James is supernaturally calling us to do is that, as, yes, it's inevitable, it's a knee-jerk reaction. We'll, of course, we'll focus on the pain or the person or the cause, but quickly to respond by focusing on the Lord, on our God the Father, on the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is the key in this passage. Now, James goes on to further explicate what it means to persevere with patience under these type of trials and circumstances by using three different examples. And they're all very important. And they're related, but they're all distinct and important. The first one he uses is, is that of a farmer, specifically farmer's labor of faith. He says, see how the farmer waits for the land to yield this valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains, you too be patient and stand firm. So our ability, to, what he's calling us to do in the midst of sufferings is to wait and to be patient. Now, why does he use a farmer? Now, again, I don't know how many of you grew up farming. I didn't grow up farming, but I've learned enough that farming is an incredibly difficult profession. No farming just sits around and do nothing, right? But sometimes we think of suffering that way. If I ask someone to be patient or to endure their suffering, we think of them just meaning just sitting back and being passive and not doing anything. And I think uh, James uses the farming analogy to show us another understanding, a deeper understanding of what it means to patiently endure. Because a farmer, the way that they work, especially in the Middle East, even today, but for sure 200 years or before irrigation, is that is that it, this is one of the hardest ways to make a living because the rocks are so, I mean, the ground is so hard and, and there is so little water and it is so hot. So what they have to do is that they have to wait for the early rains, which is in October, when, about this time of the year. When, when it rains briefly, the desert all of a sudden, this hard rock becomes soft, soft enough that they can till and plant their seeds. So that's when they quickly plant their seeds. And then they have to wait until when? by about April. As the, as the seed begins to germinate and grow, it cannot come into harvest until this abundant rain in, 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 in April comes. And until then, there's nothing they can do. They can't, you know, divert the river. They can't dig up a well. They're just stuck waiting. And then when the rain comes, it begins to grow quickly. And then when the rains end and, and they're mature, this is when they start harvesting. And harvest, harvesting season is maybe the hardest time of all time. When you have to, you just have this incredible time pressure to quickly cut everything and, then, and to thresh and do everything that you need to make food. So being wait, waiting patiently doesn't imply that you're passive. It is an incredible labor, right? But it is a labor that is a partnership. Every farmer who ever plants anything has to believe that God will be faithful to deliver what he promised in Deuteronomy, that he will send the rains. You see, before he even sees the rains, he has to start preparing, tilling the soil, cleaning up. And before he can get into harvest, he has to start working as he's waiting. So what I call this is, is this joyful partnership as they bring this valuable crop 
of both the farmer and the Lord working together in faithfulness to bring about this partnership. Now, this analogy is something that Jesus uses a couple of times. In John chapter 4, when he talks, tells the disciples, he says, look at the fields, talking about Samaria, they're ripe for harvest. And he describes the reaper and the uh, uh, sower working together. And, and again in Luke, he points to the disciples and says, look at the fields. And what he means is, what he's inviting the, uh, the disciples to do is to go into a partnership with him in which they mutually believe in each other, rely on each other, and work together. So this is a, a, di- a different way of thinking about suffering. See, the first thing we must understand is that when we suffer, when we go through trials as Christians, you have to realize, we have to realize that we're not alone. That the God who is faithful is working with us. And we also work with him. What is the the, the harvest? Um, He says, he mentions twice again about the Lord's coming, just as the rains come. Now, there's two ways of looking at it. First of all, in generally speaking in Scripture, when it talks about the Lord's coming, it refers to Jesus' second coming. And it refers to the end-time harvest in which God gathers into his kingdom all the wheat, all the people who, who believed in him into his kingdom. And so we know already the connections that James is making between our suffering and our patient endurance and our active patient endurance and how God will use our suffering to accomplish his goal of harvest into the kingdom. But, but I believe that this is actually not just the only way to understand this passage and apply this passage because God not only, uh, Jesus not only visits us ultimately, he visits us even now. Think about this. Think about the last time you went through an incredibly difficult trial in your life. Whether it is a, something as, like my son just went through last year, waiting to get into college. Us parents trying to figure out how we're going to pay for it, right? Or waiting for the baby to come, waiting for the right person, waiting for the results of medical tests, and wondering how you're going to navigate through that. That in every one of those circumstances, God is working with us and he's present. And when he visits us, when we just when we think we cannot bear it anymore, usually, I mean, God intervenes into our life. And the result of his visiting us is another sort of harvest. It's a harvest of spiritual fruits. I contend to you that, that almost every uh, spiritual growth that we experience is a result of trials and of waiting and of endurance and Jesus visiting us. And, and together, as I endure, bringing about the righteous fruit that God desires in us. The word near when he says the Lord's coming is near. Sometimes you think of it as meaning that, that Jesus is going to come immediately. No. In Scripture, what it means is that it's not immediate, but it's eminent. Meaning that it is close at hand. You see, that at the right time, there's nothing holding back the Lord. He can come, he can come right now and end, end it all. Or begin the kingdom right now. But if he doesn't, that means it's because he's got a purpose. He has a purpose. And we'll get to that in a second. But I want us to realize that. That in our own personal lives as well, Jesus could come and solve all of our problems the moment, at this very moment. He can. But if he doesn't, that means because he has a a purpose. A greater purpose. And so we have to wait. 
and we have to endure. We do all that we can, but ultimately it cannot be resolved until he comes and breaks through. So that's what the farmers does. It's a labor of faith. That each step is a labor of faith. The second example that he uses are the prophets. And he speaks of their persistent faithfulness. Their persistent faithfulness. Now, he begins this section by saying, Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Then he goes on saying, Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. So how, why does James bring about grumbling and speaking in the name of the Lord? Right? It's kind of obvious from the earlier sections. See, what happens is that when we're under incredible duress and when we go through trials and suffering, the natural response is that we give in to despair and bitterness. Maybe not in the first few hours or days. But if it lingers on and on and on, we can't help but fall into despair and bitterness. And then what does it lead to? Grumblings and complaints. At first, it may be internal. But I think for guys especially, it it comes out. You know, when I was thinking about this, I thought of the many times at the difficult points of our life, when I was experiencing a lot of stress in my work, I'd come home. And I have two young children and my wife, dear kids and wife. And I would bring my stress home. And, and I'm either moody and just want to be left over in my man cave, or if they bother me, I just lash out. And I remember the times my, my dear wife would plead with me, Han, please, I know you're under a lot of stress, but don't forget, you're the leader of this family. How you are impacts every one of us. Grumbling against one another. We tend to, I tend to grumble against those who are closest and dearest to me. And, and, and when I allow myself, because of the stress, go into this grumbling and complaining and bitter and despair mode, what it robs me is, is my, what God calls me to do in my family and in my life. See, as prophets, if prophets give in to grumbling because people don't listen, you know, they don't respond, guess what? They cannot, out of the same mouth, grumble and give the good news. In, J- in chapter 3, James says, out of the same mouth comes praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Unless we realize, unless we learn through the Spirit to focus on the Lord and to overcome our natural inclinations towards, towards grumbling when we experience stress, we cannot fully be what the Lord wants us to be. And the reverse is true. Our patience in suffering becomes the platform for our witness. You know, I realize this, and you've realized this too, when you, especially when you speak to, uh, actually anyone, non-believers, believers. When people around us see us experience extreme difficulties, and they detect in us the kind of peace that Jesus promised, and they detect in us patience and virtue, guess what? Every little thing that we say and do gets magnified. I'm convinced in my life that what really connects people together is not similar interests, similar culture, whatever. The real things that bind any kind of people together is our similar shared suffering, experience of suffering. You know, I experienced that again in my life. I remember when we lived overseas, we were, you know, East Asians among Middle Easterners, Christians among Muslims, 
And uh, there were so many things that separated us. But the two things that really brought us closer to the local people around us, our neighbors, for my wife, was her incredibly difficult experience of having eczema. It was so hard in, in the dusty, hot place over there. I remember there are times when my wife would cry and say, I, would I wish God would just, take, just cut off my fingers. It was that bad. For me, it was experiencing economic failure. <laughs> I was a terrible businessman. And when I literally became totally broke, and I had to sell my car, and I had to walk in those dusty streets, I realized that that was connecting in a far more real way to the people who are already experiencing what it means to live in a third world, not having all the benefits that we have. It is our suffering, people, that makes, gives us the platform for us to fulfill the calling that God has given us. Third, Job's refined faith. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. Uh, you have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Here's what we learn through Job um, in this section, that the Lord allows suffering in order to bless us. He says, as you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered, right? We count as blessed those who have persevered. See, what this means is that without suffering, there is no perseverance. And without uh, perseverance, we don't reach this level of blessing that God wants to get, pour down upon us. This is in a way, very simple and basic, but totally against our nature again. We think of as blessed, blessing as something that we gain. That, you know, whatever, health, wealth, whatever. But Jesus speaks of blessing as something that we lose, that we suffer. But just because you suffer doesn't make you blessed. In fact, there are a lot of miserable people all around the world and all around us who are miserable because they suffer. But if they learn in Christ to persevere and be patient, entrusting themselves in the Lord through their suffering, that is the true blessing that God wants to give us. Here's what that means. There is no shortcut, brothers and sisters. If you want to be blessed by the Lord, you have to go through the valley of suffering and trials. There is no way about it. Some of you are nodding because you can relate. Now you know. Why at work, at our home, you go through so much unnecessary, unexplained, and sometimes unjust trials and suffering? Because God is actually wanting to bless you. We have a, a strange God, but a true God. Job endured unexplainable calamity and false accusations, but he refused to curse God and die like his wife told him. Rather, he allowed his faith to be refined by the trials that he went through. We see in this long book, Job's uh, uh, um, uh, faith getting re uh, refined. I want to just quickly read this. I was inspired by what Mo said about blessed be the, um, the song that we rang, uh, sang, right? Blessed be the Lord. That comes from Job chapter 1. And anybody know when Matt Redman wrote that song? It's pretty amazing. I just looked it up. Just to, I, I thought I was sure, but I just looked it up, you know. He wrote this as a response to 9-11. One of the greatest collective sufferings in our lifetime. Probably even greater than COVID. No, maybe not. I'm not sure. Let me just read to you. I just Googled it and I found this. Let me just read to you. Uh, Matt Redmond wrote, Blessed be your name, with his wife Beth, in response to the tragedy of 9-11 attacks in the United States. It reflects 
on the faithful response to suffering we see all throughout Scripture, especially from Job. Praise. Blessed be your name is uh, nearly a direct quote of Job 121. Job was a godly man to whom the Lord had given large family and many possessions. But in just one day, Job suffered four devastating losses, wherein all his children were killed and his belongings either stolen or destroyed. Job's response was astounding. Naked I came from my mother's tomb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. This is a tough pill to swallow. Praising God in the midst of suffering, while many songs avoid connecting the dot between a sovereign God, the Lord, and the suffering we face, blessed be your name, boldly charges into this challenging and deeply personal biblical territory and calls this God glorious. This is worship. To give God our lives over to God and trust Him completely, even when we don't fully understand. But how can we do otherwise? If God is all-powerful and also entirely good, then we can praise Him every season of our lives because He's still on the throne and still working all things for our good. Amen. This points to this incredible fact that James tells us in this one. He says that the Lord has a purpose. This comes from the last verse when he says, and have, he says, you have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. English, is, this is kind of a loose translation of a difficult Greek construction. Literally, the Greek says, what the telos, which means the end or the aim or the purpose of the Lord. So what he's saying is that, is that, that the final thing that he says in his exposition, I mean, the, the next to the final thing is that, that God has a purpose for not only for the suffering that we go through, but in calling us to this impossible task of patiently enduring the suffering that God gives us, not grumbling, not running away, not becoming bitter, and not trying to escape it by all means, but patiently enduring because God has a purpose. What is that purpose? Well, we know because Pastor Paul talked about it in the first chapter, right? This is an example of inclusio, right? He begins chapter 1 saying, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Again, it's not just sufferings. He says trials of many kinds. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Here's the word again. That perseverance finishes work so that you may be mature. The word for mature in some translations, it says perfect. It's teleos. You see, it's just, it's just a couple little different from telos. It's, that's no accident. What it's saying is that, that the aim that God has, in which he's trying to achieve, is to, is to take us to the end, meaning the, the final state of his creation, which is that we become fully mature spiritually. And not lacking anything. Notice again here, it doesn't say, in spite of some of our popular preachers, God's desire is that we don't, not that we lack, lack, you know, like, no health and wealth and things like that. No. Clearly what he's talking about is the opposite of that. That in fact, the most, the road to to, to spiritual maturity that, that God wants oftentimes is paved through poverty and suffering and illness and sickness and impossible situations. 
when I consider what my uncle and I are going through, all I can say is God loves you guys so much. He's preparing you in the final stage of your life for more glory, more perfection, and more maturity than you've ever imagined before. That is why we glorify him. This is the answer that, that, that the Lord's tell us or the purpose is that we become teleos, mature, is the answer to the, this conundrum Jesus places at the end of the, his Sermon on the Mount when he says, be perfect, teleos, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Any honest listener of what Jesus said would have to walk away from Jesus shaking his head. How can Jesus call us mere mortals to be perfect as the Father? Jesus meant it 100%. Because he knew that that was God's intent from the creation of the world. And, and God intends to make us mature, make us perfect, dare we say, as God is perfect. How? Through patient endurance of sufferings. There's no other way. There's no other shortcuts. This is it. It's not about knowledge. It's not about talents. It is about by faith holding on to the goodness of God and allowing the Lord to inflict whatever pain and suffering and injustice that he sovereignly gives to us out of his abundant love over us. The Lord's purpose is that we become mature. Quickly, so uh, in the book of uh, James, um, uh, and as in, in this section in particular, we see that the, one of the biggest instruments that God uses in our becoming teleos, mature, is the patient endurance and suffering. But that's not the only thing. I want to mention two other things, which are actually weaving in through this book, and then the third one, which Pastor Paul will talk about next week, I hope. And, and, and the second thing is this. It's the Word of God. Without the Word of God informing us and encouraging us and rebuking us like when we grumble, we cannot. Suffering alone will not make us mature. We know that. People suffer, and some people even endure but they may not reach the maturity level that God wants without the word of God. I love what Paul says in Colossians 1.24, who understood both suffering and God's will. He says, now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you. He says, I am rejoicing in the midst of my most severe sufferings. Why? And I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. He, Christ, is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, i.e. scripture. So that we, you and I, may present, I'm sorry, they may present everyone, you and I, fully teleos, mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. The Word of God is the very instrument that God uses. And He uses people who teach and deliver the Word of God like, uh, like Paul. That we may reach the level of security in the context of the patient endurance that he calls us to in, in suffering. No other shortcuts, no other way. And there's one more thing that is really important, and that is the community of God. Ephesians 4, 11, 13, again, Paul says, So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people, the church, for works of service so that the body of Christ, the church, may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become... Mature, perfect, teleos, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of God. 
Before we end, he throws in one thing that to me is just amazing. I, I think I was most blessed by, by this little phrase. He says, he says and, 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 and uh, we, we have seen what the Lord finally brought, it, brought about. And then he says, the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. And I can relate this. Sometimes as kind of a male engineer, I get really obsessed by goals, tell us. And I forget. I don't balance that out with compassion and mercy. But our Father is not like that. Our Lord has a shepherd's heart. He knows us. He knows exactly how much we can endure. He knows exactly how much we can learn at any point. He knows how much we can go, how much we can take, what we can do, what we cannot. And so even the suffering that he allows for our good, he meets it out from a shepherd's heart, knowing us intimately. He says in John 10, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. Uh, Matthew 12, 20, quoting from Isaiah 42, 3 about Jesus, a bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Have you ever felt that you're under so much stress and so much doubt and temptation that you felt like your faith is just flickering like a tiny little candlelight in the wind? Have you ever felt like you're just a, a, a reed that is about to be broken and snapped? So much stress on you. Guess what? He won't let that happen because he knows us that much and he has that much compassion for us. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lamb in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. I love Isaiah 43, talking about the coming Messiah. He says, do not fear, God says, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. Thank you, Voltaire, for showing us what these rivers and, and these this, this, this uh, in, in, in desert looks like. When all of a sudden, this torrential rain comes in. It, it just takes everything away. And he promises us that no matter what trials we go through, it will not overwhelm us. He says, when you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. Why? Because he knows our limits. And why? Because he wants to protect us and preserve us. We cannot persevere if he doesn't preserve us. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. This is our Lord. Don't forget his heart. When you experience difficulties, don't forget his heart. Know where it comes from. Know where it comes from. And, know, and never, doubt, never doubt his heart towards you and his good and perfect knowledge towards you. Here's a concluding statement. As, as suffering inevitably flows into our lives, let us keep our focus on the Lord and patiently endure it while we partner with him in faith like a farmer for his harvest. Persistently share the good news and not give in to despair. Persevere opposition so that it would further refine us like Job while holding dear the purpose and the heart that our Father has for us. Challenge. I'd like you to just, in the quietness of your heart, just ask yourself, as I've been asking myself, seeing how much God cares about his telos and, and our telios, our maturity, how much do I care about those things? Do I really care about God's purpose? And do I care about my maturity, spiritual maturity? 
Am I actively prioritizing my spiritual maturity? Am I actively participating in my children's spiritual growth? Am I actively partnering in the stimulation of growth of those in my community of my faith? You know, I added the word actively because James has taught us that if I were to ask you, do you believe that you should do this, do this, do this, every one of us pretty much would say, yes, yes, yes. But as we understand, that faith without works is dead. This is not to shame any one of us. In fact, I think as a church we're doing really well. It's just incredible how many people are involved in GSC and in servicing the church and, 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 and the number of shepherds we have in our church who are caring for other people. It's incredible. Praise God. And I see the intentionality we give into our spiritual and spiritual growth and the priority that we're making to meet every week to not only meet on Sundays, but, 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 but on Fridays, but not only Fridays, to meet outside of the church. I mean, honestly, I think we're doing well. But I do want to ask myself so that we may encourage each other to continue the path that God has set us for. Really quickly, I know I'm running out of time, but I just have to mention this. There's a lot of talk of injustice in the world today. And what we see the world responding to injustice and suffering is radically different than what we talked about. Let me just quote from James Hebert. James, book of James, has been concerned to help believers to overcome the ten- tendency to react like the world to the injustices heaped on them by the world. The world, by its very nature, antagonists to God and his kingdom, will continue to oppose God's people. But if the truth, if, if these truths in this book grip the hearts of his people, it will enable them to overcome the spirit of worldliness by refraining from a worldly reaction to the world's injustices. No doubt, there's so, I'm glad that our media and our nation's conscience has been awoken to, to talk about and to see all kinds of injustices around us. But maybe not. There's two dangers on each side. One is to do what the world does, using worldly means, prioritizing worldly goals like economic equality above everything else, you know, using political power and violence. That is the world's way. But there's a danger on the other side, and that is for us to see what's going on and then start grumbling and complaining and pointing the finger at them. Neither will allow us to do what God intends for us to do, which is to, in Christ, not only to uh, endure suffering that God puts in our lives, but to reach across political, ethnic, religious lines through the bridge and the platform of our common humanity and suffering and reach out to them and share the hope that we have, not in political systems, not in anything else, but in Christ and the good news of Jesus Christ. Finally, I cannot help but talk about the reality that even today, about one-eighth of Christians live in countries of severe persecution. I looked at the top 10 list. Number one is North Korea, country of my, of my people, for the last 20 years in a row. All but North Korea and India that are in top 10 are Muslim-majority countries. Living in Muslim world for 10 years, I understand a little bit of what that feels like. But the incredible good news is gospel is taking place. And uh, for us in Forest, well, what can we do? 
It's just, it's just amazing. When I looked at the list, four out of the 11 are house churches that we, we have house churches for them here. We're in a unique position to pray and to support and to remember the people that are suffering in these places. What can we do? I'm going to remind you of Matthew 25, and I end it here. Then the king will say to those on his right on the, on the judgment day, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. Who are these people? I believe most of all, Jesus is talking about persecuted Christians, our brothers and sisters, the one-eighth of, uh, uh, of Christians right now. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. There's a reason I, why I highlighted visit me. It's not just because, you know, I, I just came back visiting one of those countries. It's because I realized today, I, I honestly, 2,000 years ago, you know, day-to-day hunger, clothing was a huge deal. But you can go to Sudan, a refugee camp, and most people are fed. And, uh, and uh, they have medical care. They're surviving. Very few people are dying, like, you know, of famine, like they were even decades ago. But people that I realize crave the most are visits. And when we visit them, you may think, oh, I have nothing to offer. Yes, we do. It is our common experience of our faith, of learning the kindness of the Lord through the trials that you and I experience. You know, I've got a dear friend. She's a medical doctor. A few years ago, she went to one of these countries, and she went there to serve medically. But she got up in a room like this and, and uh, started sharing. And she said, I don't know what happened, she said. She started sharing something that she hadn't even told her husband. She talked about sexual abuse that she experienced early on in her life. She said, I don't know where it came from. And in that room of newly Muslim converts, guess what? They weren't interested in the medical services that she came to provide. They were interested in talking to her about their experience of suffering and the hope that she found and they're finding in Christ. I know Pastor Paul mentioned this before, so I want to reiterate. I pray that not only the four the house churches, but all of us, all the house churches, will make an effort to actually go visit. And when we go visit, know that, that you have everything to share, that you'll find deep commonality because of our shared experience in what God is doing in our lives to bring about spiritual maturity. Let's pray.